Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Julie Philippi. Dr. Philippi is an assistant professor in the Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery at the School of Medicine, University of Pittsburgh. She also has academic appointments in the Department of Bioengineering at the Swanson School of Engineering. She is also a member of the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Dr. Philippi, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Hello, John. Thanks for the invitation. We uh, appreciate the opportunity for you to come and share with us uh, some of your exciting and pioneering studies. I know you have many focus areas, but the uh, one that perhaps we can focus on today is your work on the aortic bicuspid valve. Uh, can you tell us a little more about that particular problem and how you're approaching it? Yes, of course. Bicuspid aortic valve is the most common heart malformation and its incidence is up to 2% of the general population. In fact, Leonardo da Vinci is credited with its first description in his many drawings of the human heart over 500 years ago. This heart malformation arises during development, whereas normally the aortic valve consists of three cusps. However, by some undetermined mechanism, at this point, the aortic valve arises as two leaflets. This predisposes the patient to valvular dysfunction such as stenosis or aortic insufficiency and also a high risk of formation of an aneurysm in the proximal ascending aorta which is independent of any valvular dysfunction. These patients also have a high risk of aortic dissection which is when the layers of the blood vessel wall can split and divert blood flow through a false lumen. These patients present for surgical intervention to correct these issues at relatively young ages, usually in the fourth or fifth decade of life. And this remarkable bimodal age distribution amidst their counterparts with the morphologically normal tricuspid aortic valve leads us to think that these patients develop aneurysm by completely different mechanisms. The histologic inspection of the tissue is virtually indistinguishable from those that arise in bicuspid patients versus tricuspid patients, but we do know that there is an asymmetric dilatation of the ascending aorta, again providing evidence that these patients have alternative upstream effector molecules. The hallmarks of the tissue manifestations include a non-inflammatory process of smooth muscle cell loss within the medial layer, as well as degradation of key matrix proteins known as collagen and elastin and biomechanical weakening of the aortic wall. So Dr. Philippi, I understood you to say that the problem develops in the gestational period. What is your approach to uh, trying to avoid or correct this particular type of problem? So in our lab, it's a highly interdisciplinary group. We have people from backgrounds of physiology, pharmacology, cell biology, as well as clinical expertise in close collaboration with our colleagues in the Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery, most notably Dr. Thomas Gleason, who is director of the Center for Thoracic Aortic Disease. And our approach has been to study aortic wall biology in human patients who have undergone elective repair of the aortic valve and aortic replacement due to aneurysm. We have an extensive tissue bank and primary cell bank of human specimens, 
And our major question is, what are the cellular and molecular mechanisms that lead to develop of aneurysm? And how can we use this information of the basic biology to identify new risk assessments and help guide the clinical decision-making for physicians and their patients? So two main areas of research in our lab are, number one, looking at the behavior of the smooth muscle cells within the medial layer. In particular, we're interested in free radical production and how cells respond to free radical production. We're utilizing some collaborators in the Vascular Medicine Institute to quantify various reactive oxygen species and reactive nitrogen species, the relevant enzymes that produce these, and levels of antioxidants. We published a few years ago that patients with bicuspid aortic valve are deficient in a protein known as metallothionine, which is known to have antioxidant properties as well as playing a role in heavy metal regulation. We also found that smooth muscle cells in bicuspid aortic valve patients were more susceptible to oxidative stress. In similar experiments we conducted in mice deficient in metallothionine, we found they behaved very similarly to smooth muscle cells from bicuspid aortic valve patients. And when we augmented these cells with downstream proteins in the metallothionine pathway, we were able to rescue their cell viability. And this led us to suggest that patients with bicuspid aortic valve are vulnerable to oxidative stress due to their deficiency in metallothionine. We've gone on to further hypothesize that this deficiency is a link to an accumulation of free radicals that would be damaging to the tissue wall, which leads me to our second area of major interest, which is the microarchitecture and the orientation and alignment of collagen and elastin. We found through some sophisticated imaging techniques such as multi-photon microscopy and customized image analysis software that we can note drastically different remodeling of the extracellular matrix in patients with aneurysm and bicuspid aortic valve and those with tricuspid aortic valve. We see completely different alignment of these proteins in the two phenotypes. Again, supporting our notion that these aneurysms arise by completely alternative pathways. We're also linking these studies in microarchitecture to what we know about the biomechanics of the tissue. The increase in tensile strength as well as a decrease in delamination strength that would be consistent with a different risk of aortic dissection. To marry these two themes, we're developing some novel tissue engineered approaches to ask the question of what is the impact of the extracellular matrix on cell behavior and what influence do cells have on their microenvironment. These range from simple collagen gel-based tissue models to more sophisticated three-dimensional tubular blood vessel-like scaffold-based cultures, where we can ask the question of how do cells respond to free radical and how does that influence the production of extracellular matrix, the biomechanics, and the architecture of the vessel wall. So speaking of microarchitecture, I noticed that you and your colleagues published a paper in the journal Biomechanics last year uh, addressing this particular subject. So it seems as though you're making some progress in this particular area. Yes, that I think is where the field is going, where we integrate the basic biology information that we learned from our work in primary human cell lines, as well as incorporating the biomechanical 
data and even bringing in some computational models to relate the various pieces of information to the story. And I also want to mention that we are training student trainees from the high school level up through the graduate level as well as postdoctoral trainees in this interdisciplinary approach. And our laboratory is really a unique environment that has a strong interface with clinicians as well as other experts in bioengineering, physiology, free radical biology, and computational modeling. So let's step back for a second. You shared with us a moment ago that you're interested in risk assessment. You have these two focus areas in terms of biomechanics and also microarchitecture. So looking forward for a moment, what's the expected outcome in terms of a clinical strategy? Is the strategy to prevent the occurrence after you detect patients of high population or high probability, or is it there's some other approach? Well, we really want to understand the basic biologic mechanisms, and this will help us identify new biomarkers. This work is also going to require some advances in the area of developmental cell biology and how the aortic valve arises during embryology as well as advances in the genetics. There have been several genes linked to bicuspid aortic valve, but the mechanisms governing its role in aneurysm formation are not yet elucidated. So we have been focused on the medial matrix biology and cell biology, but also now we're expanding our interest to the outer layer of the blood vessel wall, which is the adventitia. And this microenvironment that's neighboring to the smooth muscle cell layer is a diverse microenvironment of many cell types, including fibroblasts, progenitor cells, and contains its own microvasculature known as the vasa vasorum. And there's a lot of recent interest in this microenvironment in the perivascular space and how it influences and senses biology within the medial layer. So this really brings the opportunity to have a regenerative medicine approach as well. Once we can understand the interlayer crosstalk throughout the entire aortic wall, we might be able to help augment the strength of the aortic wall and identify some new avenues of research in a regenerative medicine approach. So speaking of regenerative medicine, and you mentioned tissue engineering a moment ago, can you elaborate a little bit on your tissue engineering approach to this problem? We're using tissue engineering approaches as a in vitro model to study the biology. There are a few animal models of thoracic aortic disease and even of bicuspid aortic valve. However, none really capture the human disease sufficiently in our opinion. So that's been our approach to develop a bioengineered blood vessel to manipulate various pathways and to ask very specific questions and how the mechanisms underlying aneurysm formation occur in these patients. And then it is our hope that this would also translate into a tissue-engineered therapy or help us develop some drug therapy that would be less invasive than an open operation. So speaking of surgical procedures, and you brought this up before, what does a cardiac surgeon do to repair this particular defect? So typically, the surgeon would replace the ascending aorta, completely remove the tissue, and this is the tissue we utilize in our laboratory. It is replaced with a synthetic graft, such as a Gore-Tex material. Oftentimes, these patients undergo aortic valve repair or replacement simultaneously. 
And I should mention that even in patients that have not yet developed an aneurysm, when their bicuspid aortic valve is either repaired or replaced, it does not reduce their risk of further aneurysmal development. So this seems to arise independently of valve function and represents an inherent defect in the aortic wall. So you mentioned that the predominant population that needs this particular type of therapy is in the 40s or 50s. I presume that youngsters who are still in the growth phase, they'll need this procedure typically, is that correct? That's correct. These patients are otherwise relatively healthy, and their choice of intervention for valve replacement is often driven by age and lifestyle and can impact the clinician's decision to intervene. What made me think of that is, as you're well aware, there's a other cardiac procedures where they use synthetics for veins and arteries where their children are still in the growth cycle. That presents another set of problems. Yes, yes, and, and there's been some new advances in surgical technique that are better for younger patients. So I know this work that you and your colleagues are doing is uh, both fundamental in some aspects, but also with a strong commitment to move things to the clinical setting. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the, the maturity of the program and what you see coming and when in the future. What we know is still in the very early phases. We have a lot more to learn in terms of the biological mechanisms. I'm optimistic that we have such a highly interdisciplinary group that has close interaction with the clinicians that treat these patients on a daily basis. And it is our hope that through this close collaboration, we're going to be able to identify some unique areas of advancement in understanding the disease process. In terms of developing new therapies, it's our hope that we're going to identify some biomarkers that may be able to be measured in simple blood tests as well as help us develop some new imaging modalities to help us identify at the tissue level early stages of disease. From a realistic perspective, we're probably at least looking at three to four years before something may mature to the point that it's clinically feasible. Yes, that seems reasonable. Which for a patient seems like a long time, but from the development of the science, it's actually optimistic and short. Dr. Philippi, before we conclude, I want to take note of the fact you mentioned earlier that uh, you have education programs uh, from the middle school, high school level, all the way up through uh, post and pre-doctoral programs. Can you tell us in particular a little bit about the your education initiatives at the uh, lower grade levels? Well, we're very interested in giving students the opportunity to see careers in biomedical research and realize what they can be involved with once they complete their studies in high school. So even as young as middle school students, we've been working with pit bioengineering and their summer camps to develop activities that mimic what we do in the lab and introduce tissue engineering concepts related to cardiovascular biology and study and treatment of aortic disease. And this really is exciting for the students. They get to see the type of research that we do, the type of research that's possible, and how they can help make a difference in human health and begin to get excited about tissue engineering and regenerative medicine. So as you know well, and I think some of our listeners know, 
there's a very positive indication that where students get to have hands-on experience in the laboratory or even at, at home or at school, they tend to adapt more quickly with a higher percentage to science and engineering type activities. I commend you for what you're doing in this regard. Thank you. I had a discussion not so long ago with someone about the opportunity for young children to, quote, tinker, unquote. Tinkering has led to uh, many scientists and engineers coming out of the, the production pipeline, so to speak. So this is very important. Some of the most thought-provoking questions I've been asked have come from middle school and high school students that's, as a result of this. That, that's, that's always exciting, and I, I commend you for what you do in that regard. Dr. Philippi, I'd like to uh, thank you for uh, sharing your studies that you and your colleagues are pursuing. As you noted at the outset, this is a very important problem affecting a reasonably significant part of the population. I wish you and your colleagues a success as you continue to develop your technologies. I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. If you or any of your other listeners have questions or suggestions, uh, we welcome your feedback. Until we meet again for another podcast, thank you for listening.